The U.S. sends a 10-country strong naval force to the Red Sea to counter the unprovoked attacks by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels on merchant ships. The curious story of anti-Hamas youngsters getting snubbed by the United Nations, the Oberlin College professor with alleged Iranian ties. That and more here on Constable Confidential. I'm Simon Constable. First, we go to our intrepid correspondent, Ben Weinthal, who is with the Middle East Forum. He writes for them and for Fox News and other distinguished publications. He joins us from Jerusalem to tell us about his recent trip to the Gaza Strip. Thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me on again, Simon. Let's talk about going to Gaza, because I know that that's a big, big deal. Right. Um, well, I've been uh, working overtime to embed with the uh, Israeli army uh, in Gaza, and uh, I've been on a waiting list uh, for almost, I guess, two months. And I finally got a call on Thursday evening that um, I'll be allowed to go in with some other reporters from the New York Times and the BBC um, and CBS um, and some other outlets, uh, the Times, excuse me, the Telegraph and the Financial Times, um, as well as some other outlets. But I was the uh, a reporter for Austria's largest paper, the Cronin Zeitung, the Cronin paper, because I write in German. So we had access to the largest Hamas terrorist tunnel that was discovered by the IDF uh, recently, that's just outside of the um, a crossing where Palestinians were allowed to enter Israel for medical help and work permits. Um, so we went over into Gaza and uh, went into this massive tunnel where you can drive cars through it. And they found uh, RPGs and AK-47s. And rocket-propelled grenades or bazookas, some people would call them. That, that That's right. Is that what you, you mean there? Correct. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's a massive tunnel that has various extensions. It's over two miles long. And uh, as I said, it, it sort of uh, splinters off into many other extended tunnels. The tunnel was not used on October 7th, the day of the massacre when Hamas invaded Israel, but it was in military uh, readiness mode, uh, the IDF told us. And... Um, the attack, uh, of course, took above ground, but it was, I guess, a, a plan B if uh, Hamas troops were uh, decimated during the above ground attack at this uh, entry point into Israel. So they didn't have to use the tunnel. So when when you went in these these tunnels, what was your impression of it? Did did it it seem like a a defeated a defeated Hamas when when you went in there? What 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 was your sort of idea of of what was going on what what the tunnel showed was the massive level of investment that uh hamas um injected into this underground city that they've built with the funds of qatar uh the islamist regime in doha and uh i i strongly su suspect uh un money that comes from uh, europe and the united states so hamas siphoned off all this type of public funds, but also funds from its its main sponsor, Qatar, which is, in my view, um, <clears throat> has enabled terrorism based on reports, I should say, um, 
And uh, instead, the IDF argues, instead of building hospitals and schools, uh, Hamas spent years building this uh, 400 meters long tunnel that burrows deep into the ground. Um, so that's the, you know, the scenario. It's filled with wires and oxygen uh, pipes. Um, when we entered, as we went, as we burrowed further into the tunnel, you then start to, uh, you're then covered in, in perspiration and the air becomes quite clammy. So um, it's, it's uh, but at the same time, you can see how you can drive on an automobile through the tunnel. And I should note that the uh, Sinwar uh, brother, uh, the Hamas terrorist leader, uh, that's the main terrorist family that's uh, been leading this war, Mohammed Sinwar, uh, the brother of the uh, main Hamas leader, uh, was the one who built this tunnel. There's video now that the IDF released, Hamas video, showing him driving in a small, or being driven in a small, what appears to be Jeep, through this tunnel. And and they, did the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, give you any indication of what they were going to do with these tunnels? Were they just going to destroy them? You'd mentioned uh, filling, the, filling the tunnels up with seawater, which would quickly destroy pretty much anything. Is that still the same? Well, this tunnel, I was told, will be blown up soon. So I, it, may be, it may be decimated this week. I, 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 we got the sense, the journalists uh, who were there, that the, that the destruction of this, uh, the largest tunnel in Gaza, was imminent. Um, <clears throat> the sea, the seawater issue is something I had heard about even before the Wall Street Journal reported on, but I didn't. I couldn't verify it, but now it seems to be happening. The Israeli, uh, the IDF has at least conducted one test or maybe more than one test where they've pumped seawater into this vast underground tunnel system and with the view of trying to knock out whatever uh, electronics exist in the in the tunnel system. The, the seawater probably would not go higher than uh, the knees of, a, of, a, of an ordinary person. Um, but at the same time, it's it's risky because the IDF does not want to, you know, allow a tsunami wave to enter the, the tunnel system because that could uh, kill the hostages, or most of whom I suspect are being held in this labyrinth of tunnels. Let's move on to a story that you wrote for Fox Media, which is fascinating to me, and I really want to hear a lot about this. It, it's titled uh, Young Generation of Anti-Hamas Activists in Gaza Step Up to Serve But Are Snubbed by the United Nations Aid Groups. What's going on here? Yeah, this is. I, I found this story quite fascinating when my editor contacted me and told me that there's a... Um, a group of um, a small group, you know, among the Palestinian population of, you know, the Palestinian population is over 2.3 million, I believe, in the Gaza Strip. But there's a small group of young people, including one uh, Palestinian youth leader. His name is uh, Muman Al-Natur. He's 28. And he's been leading a movement against, well, I should say a mini movement or a mini protest is probably the, the better phrase against uh, Hamas rule since 2019, and he's willing. He's been working to provide aid to the Palestinians right now during the war and before the war. But uh, the UN and, and all these organizations that are supposed to help uh, the Palestinian population have uh, snubbed him um, and are it, it, 
in, in a de facto way, deferring to Hamas rule. He's been arrested, Al-Natur, 20 times, according to a human rights organization in Nazareth. And that's what he said as well. And, um, and, and, tor and tortured, according to your piece, which is which is uh, absolutely horrific. Correct. And he led a, a big uh, protest in 2019 that was uh, violently crushed against Hamas. Uh, it was a protest against deteriorating economic conditions and I suspect, um, you know, widespread corruption among Hamas rulers, as, as we see there, um, you know, they've absorbed so much of the aid, whether it's concrete oxygen for hospitals that they've used for their terror tunnels um, and other goods for the for the aims of their terrorist movement instead of devoting it to the population. So this protest in 2019 was crushed by Hamas, but so you have some rare voices in the Hamas-controlled uh, Gaza Strip that are against Hamas. Whether the UN and Western leaders are willing to cultivate this type of new leadership is still an open question. Certainly, the UN has not, uh, in any way, shape, or form, uh, helped these struggling voices. One of the Interesting quotes here, and I'll read it from from him. Is quote on on the military level, Hamas does not have even two or three percent of the strength Israel has. And then he says it's important for that those who suffered for seventeen years are the ones who should be leading for the future of Gaza. We represent the, the youth, the disenfranchised. Quote: We do not need donors to govern us. What does he mean? Well, we do not need donors to govern us. Well, I, my my uh, read of, of what he said during that um, question and answer period was he doesn't want uh, all these relief organizations to exercise control or partial control over uh, civilian society in a in a post Hamas uh, society, and he doesn't want even pre. Uh, you know, before the the eventual, I guess, dissolution of Hamas, um, he doesn't want the Palestinian population to remain contingent on external forces, whether it be the Qatari regime or other aid agencies. It's a it's a it's a question of uh, pure self determination for the the Palestinian population. And as as I report in the article or during my interview, he he advocates a. Uh, a two-state solution, namely a Palestinian state that would coexist uh, with uh, Israel. And it's, it's notable that uh, standing on his own two feet or wanting uh, Gaza to stand on its own two feet is, is a remarkably American situation, not wanting to live off handouts from, from anyone and also not wanting the influence as, as well. Now, we turned to the professor at Oberlin College, who allegedly has ties to Iran or bad ties to Iran, and he's now on administrative leave. And you have written about that. And that work that you wrote, again, for Fox News, has been picked up by the U.S. government. Explain what's happened here. Well, I've been reporting on Mohammed Jafar Mahalati uh, for three years uh, since Iranian uh Americans and Iranians around around the globe in the diaspora uh, urged that Oberlin College in Ohio, in Oberlin, Ohio, uh, fire Mahalati because he covered up 
the mass murder of 5,000 Iranian political prisoners in 1988 when he served as the uh, Iranian regime's ambassador to the UN. And it seemed the, 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 the college reached its, Oberlin College reached its breaking point uh, last month and placed Mahalati on leave. And the sense is when I just, when I um, try to extract information about what led uh, to him being ousted, that is Mahalati is there, there's been a series of events. One is obviously the, that uh, Amnesty International has accused him in two reports of uh, covering up crimes against humanity. That's the, the phrase they use. Um, he endorsed a fatwa against the British American writer Solomon Rushdie when he was ambassador. He called for a global jihad against Israel and, and urged the elimination of the Jewish state. He also laid the ideological foundation to wipe out the persecuted Baha'i group in Iran when he was ambassador. And lastly, uh, there, there was a, a recent revelation that he sexually harassed a young student of his at Columbia University in the late 1990s. So that cumulative effect is what might have, uh, in the end, sparked Oberlin College to uh, strip him of his, his academic post. But it's unclear. They won't tell me when I asked them on the phone, that is the spokesman for Oberlin, what, what was the reason? And all, all the, all the college is saying, the only thing the college is saying at this point, we put him on uh, administrative leave on, uh, on November 28th. Uh, yeah. And that spokesman is also at the, the end of the story here, quote, we learned of the lawsuit filed by the Southern district of New York against, uh, against him from a media inquiry sent to us on December the 5th, we would not hire a faculty member whom we knew had a history of sexual assault, harassment, or abuse of anyone, including a student, colleague, or a staff member. But what you listed earlier was such a long list of infractions against, against human rights in some cases that you would think any one of those would have had him you know, be in the ejector seat. Uh, really, it is kind of puzzling why it took them so long. Yes, uh, Simon, you zoomed in on the on the sort of 800-pound uh, gorilla question in the room that everyone or many folks are asking, at least who have who have followed this Mahalati story in a granular way. In a granular way, because he's the the highest ranking. A former Iranian re regime official serving or working in the U.S. and he has American citizenship. But why would Oberlin um, not dismiss him in light of the in light of all the what what his critics say is overwhelming evidence from the national and internet international human rights lawyers that he went to great lengths to cover up a massacre of 5,000 people in 1988. They did not object to that, Oberlin College. In fact, they issued a report whitewashing his crimes, and then they scrubbed that report from their website, Oberlin College's website, once uh, the story started to break about, um, uh, you know, the it, charges of anti-Semitism against him and other, and I, and I perhaps uh, there's some connection to the sexual harassment. So they won't, Oberlin College simply won't explain uh, what what you just zoomed in on, and by the way, Shirin Abadi, the uh, Iranian uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, also said Oberlin College whitewashed its investigation against Mahalati by clearing him of those uh, crimes against humanity. But Oberlin stuck with him until uh, last month.
And that that is quite interesting because what I know about human rights lawyers is that there's quite a high hurdle to get over before they they show up and start saying, "Look, this is a problem. This this is what's happened." And yet it, there he was, you know, having allegedly done this and, and committed these these massacres. And and, the, and 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 so I mean it's it's not like getting picked up for a parking ticket uh, that you may or may not deserve. This is quite quite a high hurdle when the human rights lawyers show up. Correct. And he Mahalati uh, had the uh, nickname, I guess, of of Professor of Peace within the Oberlin College community for over a decade, I believe. So he he sported this name, the Professor of Peace, but at the same time he, um, again, according to to all these experts and, and Amnesty International, um, committed war crimes slash crimes against humanity, and this is, by the way, one of the most liberal, so-called, um, putting this in scary quotes, woke colleges in the United States, Oberlin College. Yet they, the management of the college, did not object for years to the uh, the fact that he played a critical role in uh, covering up this massacre. We'll see what happens next with that. Let's now turn to the U.S. announcing a 10-nation force, uh, naval force, basically, to help save merchant shipping around the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is what happens after the Suez Canal, which takes big ships from the Mediterranean right through to what becomes the Indian Indian Ocean. So that's a, a, a critical place to move oil through. And we've seen oil prices go up. Price of Brent crude went up considerably over the last week or so. What do you think this naval task force, if you want to call it that, will do to help? Well, I talked today, it, again, it's an interesting question. I talked today to one uh, Israeli, um, former Israeli uh, intelligence official for the military intelligence here who served as an advisor, a counterterrorism advisor to uh, Israeli Prime Ministers Yitzhak Rabin and Shamir. His name is Egal Kramon. And he said the alliance, and I thought that was an interesting take, is mainly um, an American uh, endeavor. That is, there's an alliance, but at the end of the day, the Americans will use their massive warships to uh, strike the uh, Houthis, the Iranian-backed terrorist movement that's based in Yemen, uh, to counter their um, terrorism and, and piracy in that region. I should note that the Houthis, their slogan is, and I, I think this is quite important, is uh, Allah's greater, death to America, death to Israel, curse on the Jews. This is the same group that the Biden administration at the start of his presidency uh, delisted as a terrorist organization. The Trump administration designated the Houthis as a terrorist organization and Biden delisted them. And you can see right now what, what they've done uh, in, in because there's been, according to many experts, no deterrence against them. So the big question is, will this alliance deter the Houthis and Iran, their main uh, proxy or a strategic partner? And it's going to be very interesting to see that. One of the things that I have been told, and, and my understanding is that the, the Houthis are launching cruise missiles from well inside Yemen. So they're not they're not in little boats firing them at vessels on the Red Sea 
or anywhere near. It's a long way inside the country. Is that something that a Navy can do to, you know, can, can counter with its own cruise missiles straight back at that? Or is that just a waste of time? It would seem to me trying to find people in the desert would be quite tricky. Well, the American, you know, the the American military has a spectacular, spectacular level of air power, and they're bringing warships into that region, so they uh, could use fighter jets, um, as and they have the uh, for, the most forward-looking uh, military base in in Qatar of all places, CENTCOM. So there is the there clearly is the ability based on uh, intelligence. Uh, to track where these cruise missiles are coming from in Yemen and uh, destroy uh, the infrastructure as well as target the the terrorists. Um, I mean, so I, I wouldn't rule it out. The, the, real, the, the other problem, though, is the Iranian regime is providing all of this military technology to the Houthis to use against America and its allies, but the Americans um, have not really... Uh, countered Iran's jingo, jingoism in the region. There's been over 100 uh, military strikes against American assets in the Middle East that are uh, blamed on Iranian-backed militias. So the, the sort of uh, the head of is Iran. That's what uh, Iranians say. Uh, the Houthis, Hamas, Hezbollah, the head of the snake of all the this troika of terrorists that I just outlined uh, is Iran. The question is, will America um, ratchet up the its military power to uh, stop Iran's financing and sponsorship of these terrorist organizations? One thing we do know about the Houthis is that they were waging a proxy war against Saudi Arabia until quite recently. Do you think Saudi Arabia will step up and try and fight the Houthis from the other side? Um, the other physical side of Yemen, where they're based? Depends on, you know, what the Americans uh, want. Uh, I mean, the, the problem is America has has recoiled in many ways from the Middle East, and the Saudis uh, see what, what they view as a very feeble and uh, uh, almost incurably weak American foreign policy in that part of the world on it, in its back door, namely. And that's why Saudi Arabia shifted toward um, China and uh, other world powers as opposed to the U.S. The U.S. is willing to flex its military muscle in the region and uh, work to root out the Houthis movement in Yemen. Then they might be able to, to persuade the Saudis to join into a, a, a align themselves and, and engage in combat. But uh, the Americans, if you remember, uh, forced the Saudis to uh, stop fighting the Houthis in Yemen um, recently. So it's it's a very bizarre situation. It is indeed a very bizarre situation. Um, we'll look forward to your future reports on that. Thank you very much. Ben Weinthal in Jerusalem, who writes for the Middle East Forum, Fox News Media, and other distinguished publications. I'm Simon Constable. This is Constable Confidential. And that's it.